Bad? Sorry, got to turn the microphone on. I know y'all be so disappointed. The microphone wasn't on. It's good to see you. No? Everybody's still in a little turkey coma. It's good. Welcome to those of you that are tuning in online or on Tuesday, as we like to call it, because you're traveling, enjoying time with the friends and family. But it's good to be together. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest this morning, extra points for you coming as a guest on Thanksgiving weekend. Definitely got out of a year of purgatory by coming. In fact, all of you did. All of you, I absolve you of at least one year in purgatory of cleansing because you came on Thanksgiving weekend. So it was funny. So some of you know, like this year we're experimenting with a couple of online only weekends. And I probably had five people ask me last week, next week's online only, right? Like, and we didn't even think about it. And like the planning, like, I don't know why we were like, no, the the Sunday after Thanksgiving is a good week for us to not do an online only weekend. We should, so we'll see what happens. But uh, thank you for being here today. We're in a series called Hope With Us, where we're exploring the science and the spirituality of hope. And uh, we're asking the questions, the big questions about hope. We have these big signs that say hope is here. What does that mean? Our anchor verse for this series comes from a letter. It's not really a letter uh, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, that says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about when the writer of Hebrews used the word hope, it's this hope that we can experience the divine without any mediation that God is present. And there's this beautiful metaphor throughout that little book in the New Testament, this idea that you can have full access to God. You don't need me. You don't need to give in the offering. You don't have to make a donation. You don't have to go through a class. We can live and move and have our being in this reality called the divine. And that's the hope that holds us, right? And so week one, we kind of defined hope. And we said, hope is when we see a better future, right? We have a vision. We discern the pathway there. We know how to get there and we own our part. We recognize that we have agency, that we have something to do with it. That's when we can say hope is here. And so we've been talking about the science of hope. The spirituality of hope gives us a supercharged hope. And last week we asked this big question, well, does it even matter? Does hope matter? And we said that hope in God is a spiritual pathway to happiness, confidence, and peace what we might call well-being. So we said, yes, it absolutely does matter. And then we said, well, how do we get that? How do we live into that? What are some steps we can take? And I told you, you had to come back this week or you had to tune in. And so that's what we're launching this week. We're going to start chatting a little bit about how do we start to live in the space of hope. Now, this past week, our family traveled to Las Vegas. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that as a pastor, but I was there. And uh, we had a great time. And part of the travel, like, is just uh, some downtime. And I finally got to watch Loki season two. Any Loki fans in the house? Any of you all? Right? So little, I'm going to try not to give any spoilers, but I've got my variant shirt on today uh, as part of it. So one of my, I just think it's a brilliant show. Um, and the, and, and the, the point of Loki season two is they're just trying to save the, the multiverse, all of it. 
It's all breaking down, right? And, uh, and there's this beautiful, amazing scene between Loki and one of the other characters named Sylvie. And he's trying to convince her that we have to do something. We have to fix this. This is a problem. Everything is going to be destroyed. And she is not into it. And he's trying to explain everything. And she's basically saying, you just destroy things, Loki. That's what you do. This should be your favorite thing in the world, right? Like you should be so happy because it's just all going to end. And this is what you want to do, right? You're like the, the god of mischievous nature and things like that. And, and then Loki says this. It's so good. He says, annihilating is easy. Raising things to the ground is easy. Trying to fix what's broken is hard. Hope is hard. I thought that'll preach. That'll preach this week. I'm in, I'm in the zone. I'm in the zone. I'm watching the right TV, right? I love that. Trying to fix, fix what's broken is hard. Hope is hard, right? And we can think about that in all types of arenas of our lives. When we feel as if our relationships are broken, when we feel as if our health is broken, when we feel as if everything around us is broken, it's really easy. When we feel like church is broken, our spirituality, religion is broken, it's really easy to tear it down. It's really easy to not, but to try to fix it, that's hard. And then he makes that beautiful statement, hope is hard. How many of you have ever experienced that reality that hope can be hard? Well, why is that? Well, hope is hard because trauma is real. Because trauma is real. Last week, we just touched on this idea of trauma, and I want to unpack that a little bit today because it's going to bring us to kind of the first couple of things that we can do to have rising hope or hope that grows in our lives. So last week we said that trauma is an event or a circumstance in our lives that results in kind of emotional or even life-threatening harm, and it has this lasting adverse effect on our mental health, a lasting adverse effect on our physical health, our emotional health, our social well-being, and even our spiritual well-being. And last week I said that trauma has a non-discrimination policy. Doesn't matter how much money you make, doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter your education, doesn't matter your gender, your race, your sexual orientation. Trauma knows no boundaries, right? Trauma will find us. And it typically involves these experiences or even just simply witnessing an event that's life-threatening. It involves uh, the, the loss of our bodily autonomy. We're out of control. That's taken away. And so trauma is really about our response to an event and not the event itself, right? So research tells us that two people can go through the same event and their bodies will respond differently. And so trauma in our lives isn't about, oh, well, like I'm, I'm, I, don't, I didn't have any or I went through this experience and, and I, it didn't affect me so it shouldn't affect them. That's not how trauma works. <laughs> we can go through the same experiences and just being wired differently, we, we respond to those differences, we respond to that experience can be quite different. So there's this spectrum. And one way to think about trauma is trauma is pain trapped in our bodies. Trauma is fear trapped in the body, right? And, and, and these, this pain, this fear gets trapped inside of us, right? And here's what's fascinating. Trauma, right? Trauma loves trips down memory lane, right? And these little trips down memory lane are called triggers, and maybe you've heard this phrase, some of you have heard this phrase, sometimes in church, if we know we're talking about a topic that maybe people have experienced, we try to give a little bit of a warning. 
so people understand, like, hey, we're going to talk about a topic today that, that might bring up some pain, right? And so these little trips that we go on, right, is like that trapped pain in our body trying to get out. And so that memory, that experience can get relived. So let's talk about this word trigger for a second, because quite honestly, sometimes this word gets used when we're just uncomfortable. There's a difference between discomfort and trauma, right? I could talk about something that you're not comfortable with, like giving. <laughs> and that could be discomforting. But I could talk about giving, and maybe you had a past experience where that was used to control and manipulate you into thinking you were going to go to heaven if you gave so much money, or that if you didn't, something bad was going to happen to you, or the only way that you could be healthy was through giving. And so then when I talk about giving, your body literally goes back to that place and feels extreme distress, right? And so in, in some ways, we have to be careful with these words that we use, that we don't downgrade the word, right? That we don't somehow, we don't somehow use a word in such a way that it loses its power, right? And so a trigger, it's not something that just makes you uncomfortable. It's not something that you just go, well, I'd rather not talk about, you know, I'd rather not talk about this, Ryan. I'd rather not talk about how to fight fairly because I like to fight unfairly in my marriage. I'd rather not talk about parenting because I know I could do better. That's uncomfortable topics and that's kind of part of growth and part of community and what we do here. But then there's this like experience that we have that affects our emotional state and brings about extreme distress. And, and a trigger will mean like I'm experiencing this and now I'm no longer in the moment. I'm not present with what's happening right? Because now I'm, I'm back in that moment where I experience that specific behavior or that moment. And so triggers can be internal. They can be external. It could be a smell. It could be a sound, an environment. It could be an image that you see or that you experience again, something that triggers your body to go into, right, one of the trauma responses, right? Now, trauma responses have expanded maybe since you or I were younger. I mean, I was always told there's fight or flight, right? Fight or flight. But there's actually four kind of trauma responses. There's fight, there's flight, there's freeze, and then there's fawn. Fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And so what happens when a trigger event takes place in our lives, our body responds physically as if we're back in that moment. And so we're taken out of the space that we're in, we're brought back to that place of pain, that place of hurt, and all of a sudden our bodies literally will physiologically will just go into an adrenaline dump to fight, to flee, we'll freeze in the moment, we'll disassociate, or we'll fall, we'll just try to please people, we'll just get out of it, right? And here's the thing, and, and you say, why are we talking about this, Ryan? I thought we were gonna talk about how to hope. <laughs> here's what we know. You cannot experience hope. We cannot experience hope, right? Not hope as a wish. We're not talking about wishes, okay? Not talking about wishing you a Merry Christmas. We're talking about hope that says, I can see a better future. I've discerned a pathway there. I understand my part in it. You cannot experience hope. We can't experience it until we are honest about our trauma, our adversity, and the challenges in our lives. We cannot experience hope until we are honest about those things. Because as long as pain, fear, anxiety is trapped in our bodies, it will cause us to not be able to see 
a pathway forward. It will bring us to those spaces of despair. Now, believe it or not, Scripture, our, our, these ancient texts, offers us some great wisdom when it comes to honesty and thinking about and owning the trauma, the adversity in our lives, the negative experiences. Now, this guy, Paul, if you're new to Bible study, the Apostle Paul, um, is, you might consider Paul the founder of Christianity. I know some people might think Jesus was, but I don't think Jesus had any desire to start a religion. He was smart enough to know not to do that, all right? Uh, Paul, on the other hand, was a total churchman, right? He went from like Pharisee to like Pharisee still just with Jesus, <laughs> And so like some people would say, well, Paul, because Paul went around starting all these Christian communities and we have these letters that he wrote. We have letters that people wrote in Paul's name in the New Testament. And we have letters that people wrote in Paul's name to try and like undo what Paul did in the New Testament. That's how influential he was. Anybody ever write something saying they were you trying to use your authority to counter what you said earlier because they didn't like it? We have that in the New Testament. It's crazy. We have these letters where the original Paul, the radical Paul is like, no slaves, no difference between men and women, no difference between Jew and Gentile. And then we have these later letters that are written in Paul's name. The developing church has taken place and they're like, just be nice to your slaves. <laughs> and Paul's like, what? That's not what I said. There's the complexity, right? So Paul's this really crucial figure in the history of Christianity. And the original Paul, the authentic historical Paul, he was no stranger to traumatic experiences. Along the way, along his journey, he was no stranger to him. In fact, some would say that his first encounter, right, where he encountered the divine in Jesus was kind of a traumatic experience. Now, in the letter to the Corinthians, the one we have in the New Testament called 2 Corinthians, right, we hear from Paul's own hand, from his own lips, he's probably, you know, dictating it to a scribe, some of the things that he experienced. Now, if you're new to, to like looking at the scripture, the Bible, one thing we ask about the Bible here is, what wisdom does it offer us? Now, there are some things that are worth following in scripture, undoubtedly, and there are some things in scripture you got to go, maybe not a good idea anymore. It's a living document, right? And so we've been given the spirit to interpret, to think through this, to follow Jesus, to interpret. And 2 Corinthians is this very interesting collection of letters. It's a combination of letters. Most scholars believe there's at least three letters from Paul that the community at Corinth combined together over time to preserve. And within 2 Corinthians, you have these three letters. Now, Paul had spent about a year or two in Corinth starting this church, probably around the year 50, and then he left to go start other communities, and he would write these letters. Even the letter of 1 Corinthians refers to another letter that Paul had sent that we don't have. So he cared for these communities deeply. He was engaged with them. Now, chapters 10 through 13 in 2 Corinthians is probably its own little letter. It has a very different tone than the rest of it. He probably wrote this letter in a, with a sense of distress and anger. You hear it in his tone. Because what Paul's doing is he's defending himself against from these attacks that, that, that people have been using against him in Corinth. So, so people have been coming in, other leaders, other people proclaiming Jesus, and they've been saying negative things about Paul, kind of poisoning the well in Paul's mind, maligning him. And so, so chapters 10 through 13 is probably a letter that he wrote defending himself, right? And actually, most scholars think that chapters 10 through 13 are the earliest portion of, of the three letters, at least three letters that are in 2 Corinthians, probably the earliest one. Now, 2 Corinthians 11, now remember, 
what Paul's writing is against, there's people that are coming in, this community he's established, they're maligning him, they're saying they're more important than Paul, they're saying that they're super apostles, they're saying all this stuff. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 13, Paul's kind of defending himself. And over and over, he's like, I sound like a fool, but I have to do this, right? And so this is what he says. And, and while he's defending himself, you, you can see like, oh, trauma, 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 right? He says this, he says, are they ministers of Christ? Well, I'm talking like a madman because I'm better than them, right? This is what Paul says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, plural, countless floggings, plural, and often near death. Now, we could just stop right there and be like, that'll mess you up. Like, Paul needs a helping professional. Like, we would, we would in no way, shape, or form say, yeah, he probably should just go pray that one out. <laughs> no, not the case, right? So he's, got, he's, he's been imprisoned. He's been flogged numerous times. He, he's been flogged often to the point of death. He says, five times, five times I received from Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now, what is that referring to? Well, in Jewish law, uh, you could receive up to 40 lashes. And so what they would always do, they always count to 39. <laughs> you, just did, you just wanted to be careful, right? So it was always 39. You never got 40 because what if you go over, then the person administering the law is breaking the law and you have this loop of injustice and you can't deal with that, right? So he says, that happened to me five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that's not the good stoned. It's the very bad stoning kind of thing. He says, like, we could just, again, end it there. This guy's got the worst, like, never take Paul to Vegas, okay? Never do it. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day, I was adrift at sea. I, that's like a nightmare, right? That's not like the Titanic with Celine Dion playing in the background, you know? I mean, this is like for real stuff, adrift at sea, shipwrecked, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, bandits, my own people, not my people. Like I'm everybody. There's danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger with green eggs and ham, Sam I am. It's everywhere for him, right? Like this is the inspiration for Dr. Seuss, like everywhere, danger from false brothers and sisters in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. It's like the best country song ever. <laughs> Hungry, thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. It does not get much worse than that. This guy knows trauma. And besides other things, <laughs> I'm under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Whoa. Daily anxiety for all the churches. See, with all that, here's what's so amazing. With all of that, just, just for a second, I know we rush through these, but just imagine, that's what Paul has encountered as he sought to take this message of Jesus to set up communities of faith that he thought were going to change the world. As he was living out his sense of purpose, these are the things that he experienced. Yet somewhere along that traumatic way, Paul tapped into something very powerful called gratitude. All that Paul experienced, all that he has been through, all that he's done, in another letter, the first letter we have that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, very famous, 
famous passage of Scripture that even if you're not a Bible person, you probably have heard somebody say it to you, maybe at the wrong time. In all that Paul has been through, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Well, you can imagine why Paul was praying without ceasing, right? That's an easy one, given what he just said he's been through. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Just go back to all that Paul's been through. This guy's crazy. Then he's like, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. While in prison, he wrote that. <laughs> Longing for death, Paul writes about rejoicing and gratitude. And, and, and in Philippians, excuse me, he's in prison writing this letter to the Philippians, and he's talking about gratitude, not just in Thessalonians. He does this other place. So in Philippians chapter 1, in his opening address, in this letter that he writes out, he's in prison, he's wanting to die. And make no mistake about it, we read this oftentimes with rose-colored glasses, but Paul wants to die. He wants to die in, first, in Philippians. I mean, he sugarcoats it, but he wants to die. This is what he says. In spite of everything that he's going through, right? He's talking about gratitude. He says, listen, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He's talking about living and dying. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Listen to what he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is the nicest way of saying, I want to die. I want to die because being with Jesus is so much better than this, than what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through, because that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you like his sense of purpose, his sense of care, his sense of direction is the only thing that's keeping him going as he's in prison writing this, telling them it's with gratitude that he writes this letter. And he says, I am convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue. And he's going to do it because of you because of the progress of your joy in the faith. Like he knows I'm going to remain. I'm not going to get to die because there's work to be done. I'm not going to get to go be with Jesus because of you people. It's not going to happen. I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith. By my presence again with you, like I have to get to you again. Your boast might be abound, it might abound in Christ Jesus because of me. Sometimes, oh, that's pride and arrogance. No, that's purpose. That's determination. Or what about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right? A little earlier, a different part of different letter. Paul writes this. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. What's Paul saying there? I've, I, I am in my body feeling the trauma of the death of Jesus. As I proclaim Christ crucified and resurrected, I am living it out. All those lashes that I talked about, all those stonings, I'm living the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our body. So I live this death. When you see me, you experience this life. And then he says this, for we who are living are always being handed over to death for Jesus' sake 
so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our mortal flesh. And this is such a powerful statement that he says we shouldn't miss it. He says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So Paul's saying, I'm suffering. I'm going through all these things. But it's so that life can be found in you. Like you can, as you think about all these passages where Paul talks about the pain that he's gone through, the struggle, the adversity, the trauma, you can almost feel his hope rising in these passages. You can almost feel him talking himself into hope. I want to die. I want to get out of this place. I want to go be with Jesus. Oh, but you all, what you need from me is more important than that. And so I rejoice that I'm going to survive. You feel it. It's all held in relationship to his purpose, the suffering, the pain, the trauma. These are not from God. Paul never says that. Paul never says, I rejoice and I give thanks to God for all things in my life. No, that's not what he says. He says, in every circumstance, there's gratitude to be found. In everything, there's prayers to be prayed. In every circumstance, And so Paul has this deep sense of purpose, right? But he recognizes these things aren't necessary for his purpose, but get this. He also says they will not overpower my purpose. They won't stop me. They won't stop me. So you see, Paul refuses to ignore his trauma. He refuses to just ignore it. He refuses to ignore the adversity and his hardship. He refuses to assign God as the source of his trauma, his adversity, and his hardship. So what does Paul do with his trauma? Well, Paul trusted others and God with his trauma. Paul trusted God and others with his adversity and with his hardships. He said, you can handle it. You can handle the truth. And so he just, he lives it openly. He doesn't hide it. Now why? Because Paul made three choices three very important choices. One, he chose to believe in a better and brighter future in the wake of his trauma. He chose to believe that there was a better and brighter future for the people that he would interact with, that he would engage with. He chose to work for it. I will get to you. I will see you. He had a pathway. He sent letters. He wrote letters. He worked. He did his part, and he chose to be honest about his trauma. Three choices that he has to make that we all have to make. Choose to believe there's a brighter future, choose to believe that pathway can happen, and then do our part in it. So Paul would write in his magnus opus in Romans, he would write one of the most famous pieces of literature ever written, most famous statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He says this, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now you have to put that in the context of this man's life. Like, you know, my car runs out of gas, I get sick, I experience what we all experience, right? The death of a loved one. These are common shared experiences. I have never been flogged, I have never been stoned, either way, by the way, in case you're wondering. I've never experienced being shipwrecked, I've never experienced that. But Paul, who's experienced all that trauma, he says, listen, I know this, that all things work together for good. Now, certain ancient manuscripts, they've, they tried, they, when they were copying this, they said, oh, they got to help people get this. And so some manuscripts read this. We know that in all things, God works for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. 
Other ancient manuscripts put it this way. God makes all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. What are basically all these manuscripts trying to tell us? They're trying to tell us that God, no matter what the circumstances, can work in the middle of it for good. For good, if we will live under the law of love. Right? Basically, what this is saying is hope is trusting that God can use everything we experience in our lives for good when we live under the divine purpose to love. And that's what Paul was doing. He was demonstrating love as he traveled and shared what he believed was an imminent message of an imminent end of the world, and he gave himself to that purpose. So here's what we shouldn't miss. Like, don't miss this. To experience genuine gratitude while being honest about our trauma creates rising hope. When you were in a space where you feel a sense of hopelessness, where you can't see a way forward, where you're just feeling like there's no way out, the experience of genuine gratitude while being honest about our trauma is a great first step. It's a great first step to seeing hope start to rise up. So how do we live this out? First thing we do, talk about the bad stuff with someone in your life. Talk about the bad stuff that happens to you. Paul was not afraid of it. Paul was not embarrassed by it. Talk about the bad stuff. When we talk honestly about the bad stuff in our lives, and then we engage in the physical and mental efforts that it takes to help us release that trauma from the body, right? So some of us begin with a trusted friend, sharing an experience, sharing something that we maybe haven't ever told anybody, but we start there. And maybe we move to a helping professional, someone who can listen and give us some tools to help us walk through, to take that trapped pain and to start to see it released. Second thing we have to do, and this is tricky. This is a tricky thing because in church, we're not supposed to do this. If you're a faith person, you're not allowed to do this in a lot of settings. So just stick there with me. This is important, but we have to embrace natural and healthy negative emotions in times of adversity, stress, and trauma. We have to embrace them. We cannot short-circuit them. To be fully human, we need to experience this vast range of human emotions in our life. So these negative emotions, when we experience adversity and stress, it's very natural to experience rage, to experience despair, to experience fear, to experience grief, and to experience regret. These are important parts of the healing process, to experience them. And what's important in that moment, right, is to become mindful of the experience of those emotions, to be able to name what we're experiencing, to hold it as sacred, as a part of the journey, as part of being the beloved of God, even in my rage, even in my anger. You know what hope scientists call this? Hope scientists call this the survival window. I love that phrase. This is the survival window. When a loved one dies, it's a time for grief. You have to grieve. It's a survival window. When the diagnosis is bad, it's a time for shock. When adversity hits, there's this window of time. And in that window of time, it's just about struggling to survive. That's a part of the human experience. And here's the big issue why this is important, especially for people of faith. Because if someone comes along and tries to push us to rising hope in a time where it's for grief, where a time it's for anger, right? Where it's a time or a season for, but when we try to get pushed, what happens? We're going to resent them. We'll recoil back. 
as we process through our heartbreak, as we process through our pain, as we process through our loss, when someone tries to push us past that too quickly, we'll get angry. It's why you hear people say, why do people say such stupid things to me when I'm in grief? Some of you are like nodding your head. You've walked through it. Some of you are not here because you've done it, like I've done it, right? So here's the trick, right? And so this is for those of you that go, well, I don't have any trauma in my life. Fair enough. So this is for you. Please comfort people in their pain, not out of their pain. Comfort people in their pain, not out of... Like the way of Christianity often is to try and comfort people out of their pain, to make it seem that you're not supposed to experience grief, you're not supposed to experience pain, you're not supposed to experience disappointment or doubt or fear or any of those things. No, no. So we comfort people in their pain. So what does that sound like? When we comfort people in their pain, this is what it sounds like. This is devastating. Oh, it's devastating. I am with you. I am so sad. This just absolutely sucks. It's awful. It's awful. I'm with you. I'm with you. Comforting people out of their pain sounds something like this. You'll get through this. You'll get through it. God has a plan for you in this. You've got this. It will pass. I know it hurts right now, but it'll pass. I had this friend and, blah, 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 and, and we're comforting people out of their pain. And what we're subtly saying is you shouldn't feel what you're feeling. But here's the thing. You have cre been created and evolved in such a way that you're feeling it. <laughs> so instead of suppressing that, sit with it and then eventually return to the belief in the power of hope. Eventually. And so as we allow the intensity of the negative emotions to run their course during that survival window, we have to have proven coping resources that help us navigate back towards well-being. Resources like hope. In fact, being hope-centered, right, means that you've nurtured the spiritual and psychological strength of hope so that when the adversity comes, and it will, <laughs> you'll have a sense of resiliency to that pain. And you'll be able to recenter yourself on the power of hope. But during times where we lack control, where we don't have any power to change things, when we can't do anything about standing at the cemetery, dealing with the loss, we can do nothing about that. That's not the time for goal setting. <laughs> That's not the time for pathways. How do I get through this? God's good. That's not the time. That's the time to be present in our pain, to live in that survival window, to struggle, to wonder if you will make it. It's a time for us to come alongside people. And we might know that they're going to make it, but we should keep our mouths closed and just be present with them while they make it. I almost swore there. That's how passionate I am about that. But let's not set goals for people. But we can eventually embrace that definition of hope. Okay, there's a brighter future. I can discern a pathway there. I can own my part. Hope is here. And finding our way back to believing in the power of hope can happen with gratitude. 
Gratitude is a great step. So this habit of gratitude, right? Starting the day with it, ending the day with it, in the middle of the day with it, like figure out the habit of gratitude in every season of life, right? Naming your gratitude in the midst of the positive and the negative realities will build a resilient hope in our lives that will bring us back to a belief in hope, back to a recovery, get us through those moments. And why this is so powerful is because as we do these things, as we, as we just live in this space, as we say, okay, hope, I can trust other people with my trauma. I can trust God with my trauma. As we do that, as we live that out, you know what grows in us for ourselves and for others? Compassion. We learn to say it's okay to not be okay. I know that's a catchphrase, but it's so important. Otherwise, what happens? We trap the trauma and the pain inside of our bodies when we short-circuit that survival window. And so compassion is the cornerstone of comfort. When I say it's okay for me to be frustrated, to be angry, to be hurt, to feel a sense of hopelessness, then I'm going to say it's okay for you too as well. And then I can come alongside in comfort and I can have compassion towards others. And in my compassion and in my comfort, I am lending, we talked about this, I'm lending people hope. <laughs> I'm lending you my hope. I don't have to say it. I don't have to, I'm just lending it. I'll have enough hope for both of us. That's what compassion says. And I don't care how long it takes for that window to close. I'll be here with you. I'm not going to short circuit it. I'm not going to short circuit it. And that's real compassion. And that's care. And I don't know if you know it or not, but the world could use a little bit of more of that. Just a little bit, maybe. So as we come to the communion tables today, what is it that God's inviting you into? Perhaps there's some pain in your heart in your life that you just know is trapped in there. And it comes out every now and then in certain circumstances and your body physically responds to it, and you've never really talked with anybody, maybe there's just a whisper. You don't know about this God thing, but you say, I'm going to talk to a friend or a helping professional about this experience. I don't know if it's trauma or not. I don't know what it is. I don't know, but I'm going to talk with somebody about it. Maybe that's just a little whisper from the divine in your heart today. Maybe you want to take that next step and go, okay, I'll actually talk with God. That's a faith step. I get it. I'll sit and I'll just talk as if like God's my therapist. <laughs> and I'm just going to express my anger, my frustration. Maybe you were handed a, a way of thinking that God did that to you and you need to just have it out. And maybe you just need to hear God whisper, I had nothing to do with that. And maybe we have to rethink what it means to be God, to think about God through the image and the lens of Jesus, the all-suffering one. That God says, I get it and I suffer with you alongside of you. We're getting ready to enter into the Lent season. And Lent is about longing. Lent is about longing for hope. It's about longing for peace. It's about longing for the divine presence in our lives. And so maybe just a simple whisper is to join that journey. Every day you'll get a, a notice in your app, email. And just go along this journey through, through Advent of a longing for God's presence in our lives. So maybe that's a next step for you this morning. Could be something completely different. 
God works like that. I said something earlier about Loki, and you're like, I got to go watch season two. That's what God's telling me to do today. That's it. Kia's like, yes, absolutely. That's what I'm going to do. Just trust God. I, I don't know. Trust that God is at work in our hearts and our lives. So if you'll stand with me, if you're able, we're going to have communion together. I know on Thanksgiving week, probably most of you all here attend regularly, but here's the scoop about communion. This table is a reminder, is a symbol, is a metaphor of something very powerful, and that is that God loves equally and without discrimination. (laughs) And these symbols represent a God that dies, that suffers alongside of us, for us, and invites us into relationship with that great mystery. And so whatever you believe in here about God, about faith, um, it's not relevant to this moment, believe it or not, because this is about what the divine believes in us. And so these are symbols, the body of Jesus that was broken and beaten and the blood of Jesus that was shed in his way of, because he said, this is what God is like. (laughs) Because he said, God is mercy and forgiveness and grace and inclusion. And God is not religion. God is not rule following. God is relationship. And he gave his life for that image of God. And he says, I'm giving this for you. And and our spiritual ancestors have interpreted and given us these beautiful images. And so we do this every week as a reminder that that image of God nourishes us and guides us and sends us out into the world to be peacemakers, not of our own strength, but through the strength of God, the spirit of Jesus. And so everyone is welcome at these tables today. So we're gonna sing this song, I'll Give Thanks. And I would encourage you, no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what it is, that before you take the bread and the juice, before you eat it and drink it, just think of something to be grateful for, genuinely be grateful for, right? A genuine sense of gratitude. So just as you hold it, just consider what that might be. And then take and eat and be nourished by God's presence and God's love. We sing a couple songs, receive our donations. I'll give you a blessing. We'll get you out of here to launch forward into December, the cold weather, all that good stuff. But let's just take a few moments and be together in one another's presence, experiencing God and God's presence. Something powerful happens when we do that in the same space. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you and all 8 billion people on this planet. Come and receive.